It may look like worship. It may smell like worship. It may be emotionally compelling. But the farther we get away from the Scripture and what it prescribes, the less we actually worship. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new four-part series titled Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member. What does the Bible say about church membership? Have you ever really thought about it? What are the blessings and responsibilities? Well, sadly, some Christians can tend to think about church like they think about a restaurant. You know, you choose the one you like based on your individual taste. You visit when you want, and while there, you may or may not engage with others. But while that may be true of a restaurant, it's not the same for the church. Throughout this series, Tom will examine three distinguishing hallmarks of a genuinely biblical church member, the three primary priorities for belonging to a New Testament church. And Tom, for each professing believer in Christ that attends a local church, it really is essential to do church right, isn't it? Absolutely. And you know, that starts with belonging to and being committed to a church, and then pursuing those priorities within the framework of the church that match Christ's priorities for you. And that's really what we're talking about. There are a lot of things that you can participate in that may be connected to your church, but the question is, Are you involved in the main things, the things that matter to Jesus Christ, the things that he has prescribed for all of us as his followers? That's really what we want to look at together. What is it that we should own as members of a local church? We're going to be looking at that together. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. It was in the 12th century that an organization was founded in London That organization was called the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths. It received a royal charter in the year 1327, and for hundreds of years thereafter, it became known as the Goldsmiths Hall. The same organization still exists today, although not by the same name. Its offices are still on the same piece of ground that it has occupied since the year 1339 there in London. This organization has one responsibility, and that is to test the purity of precious metals such as gold, silver, and platinum. And if a piece of metal passes the test and meets the standard for purity, then it is stamped with the official symbol of this organization, and that official stamp is called a hallmark. It's actually where our word hallmark comes from. When the goldsmith's hall put its mark to indicate that a piece of metal had passed the test for genuineness, it received the hall mark. Eventually, of course, the word came to be used from, for anything that, that was genuine, that met the standard of excellence for that which was true and genuine. The New Testament compares the church to a human body, your body, and you are a member of that body with a function to fulfill, a role to perform. 
The church also is described as a family. We are. We're the family of God. It's a family you belong to. And just like with your own family, that means you have obligations both to the head of the family, the father, and to your brothers and sisters. So understand this, your whole drive to find a biblical church should be matched by an equally driven desire to be a biblical church member. There are three distinguishing hallmarks that show if any of us is in fact a genuinely biblical member of the church to which we belong. Three primary duties or priorities that come with belonging to a New Testament church. Many Christians, I'm afraid today, are not biblical church members when they're measured against these prescribed priorities. What are they? There are three of them. You can you do a lot of things in the church. You know, our church, along with many others, has a whole laundry list of things you can be involved in. But in the end, there are three priorities that are at the very heart of what it means to belong to and be a member, a biblical member of a church. They are these. Let me give them to you, and then we'll look at them. Number one, you must be engaged in corporate worship, exalting God with the church. Number two, you must be involved in service, ministering to the church with the spiritual gift that God has given you. And number three, you must be engaged in fellowship, that is, loving and caring for the rest of the church. Those are the biblical priorities of a church member, of anyone who belongs to the body of Christ. Now today, Lord willing, we'll consider the first of those, and then next week we'll consider the other two. So let's look at them. The first mark of a biblical church member is that you are involved in corporate worship, that is, exalting God with the church. Now let's begin with some definitions a definition of corporate worship. First of all, what is worship? Our English word comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, worthscape, or to sort of modernize it, literally worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship, worth-ship. It means to acknowledge the quality or condition of worth in God. It is to recognize the worthiness, dignity, and merit of God and to pay Him the respect or homage that is therefore His right. Ralph Martin in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia defines worship this way. He says, worship is an exercise of the human spirit that is directed primarily to God. It is an enterprise undertaken, listen to this, not simply to satisfy our need or to make us feel better or to minister to our aesthetic taste or social well-being, but to express the worthiness of God Himself. Let me boil that down and give you what I would say is a definition of worship. Worship is seeing and savoring the worthiness of God and responding as He deserves. Now, what is the key idea behind biblical worship? If you examine biblical revelation, you will discover that worship is always, without exception, a response to God and to His self-revelation. Martin Luther, the reformer, put it this way, and I love this quote, to know God is to worship Him. 
To know God is to worship Him. You see, when people encounter the true God, they always worship. Even His enemies are forced to do so. There are countless biblical examples. I've just selected a couple to share with you. For example, Exodus chapter 4, verse 31 says that when the children of Israel heard that the Lord was concerned about them and that He had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. So when they heard about God's compassion for them, what was their response? It was to worship. In 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 3 We read all the sons of Israel seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house that had been built bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good, truly his steadfast love is everlasting. They saw a visible display of the glory of God, the Shekinah, they saw his glory and what was their response? They worshiped, they couldn't help themselves. They were driven to it by God's self-revelation. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6, and chapter 9, verse 3, we see the people do the same thing in response to the Scripture. The Scriptures are read, and what do they do? When they see God on the pages of Scripture, they see His commands, they fall down and worship. You come to the New Testament, it's no different with our Lord. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, the disciples, what, what was their response when Jesus walked to them on the water, and then as he gets in the boat, the wind dies to dead calm? How do they respond? They, they worshiped. They worshiped. In Matthew 28, verse 9, they see Jesus after the resurrection. They see the glorified, risen Lord, and what do they do? They fall down and worshiped. Wayne Grudem writes, worship is not something that is self-generated. You see, you can't work worship up. It's not an emotion you work up. Worship, he says, must rather be the outpouring of our hearts in response to a realization of who God is. You see, the main thing about worship that you need to understand is that it is theocentric. It is God-centered. Worship is our reasonable, the normal response to a glimpse of the glory of the infinite being who is God. See God either in a visible display of His glory or in His Word, and what do you do? You worship. This, by the way, is why the Word factors so prominently in our worship, because emotion is not worship. Emotion is involved in worship, but emotion is not worship. You can work emotion up. People do it all the time at ball games and other events. You want to see a really excited group, you know, go to a playoff game down in Cowboy Stadium. You can work emotion up, but worship will only be as genuinely high as your knowledge of God is deep. They're tied together. It is a response to a glimpse of the glory of the infinite being of God. And it's only as you see Him that you will truly worship You might be emotional without that, but you won't worship without that. So that's worship. But let's go to the other word that we're looking at here, the word corporate. What is corporate worship? Well, the word corporate simply means pertaining to a united group, a collective, or something joint. So so 
Corporate worship, then, is collective or joint worship. Or again, if I could give you a definition, I would say this. It is an entire local church joining together in worship, in seeing and savoring the worthiness of God and responding to Him as He deserves. Scripture is clear that worship can and must happen individually. If you're truly a believer, you don't just worship on Sunday. You worship throughout the week. We worship privately and individually. But Scripture is equally clear, listen to me, this is really important, that all true worshipers will eventually engage in corporate worship. You can't be a true worshiper individually and not be a true worshiper corporately. It's impossible. Why is that? Well, that brings us to the, the next sort of unfolding truth we want to consider here, and that is the priority of corporate worship, the priority of corporate worship. Now, I had a number of reasons I was going to present to you today, but as often happens with my messages, a number of those reasons ended up on the cutting room floor because there just isn't enough time. I'm just going to give you two, two reasons for the priority of corporate worship. Number one, our Lord's practice of weekly corporate worship. You really shouldn't need any more than this. And this really builds on another reason I had that I cut, and that is the Old Testament priority of worship at the weekly Sabbath, because this is what our Lord did. This was the practice of His life. A crucial part of Jesus' life and ministry was being in the synagogues on the Sabbath, corporately worshiping with God's people. Let me show you this. There's, there many examples, even in Luke's gospel, but turn to Luke chapter 4, and you can't miss it here in Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. Now, verse 15 of Luke 4 explains the focus of Jesus' ministry. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all, that is, all of those around Galilee who heard him teach in the synagogues. Now, in the next verse, he returns to his hometown, and we get a little picture of what happened in all those synagogues when Jesus taught. Verse 16 says, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and don't miss this, and as was his custom. This was Jesus' habit. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Why? for the corporate worship of God's people. And as a rabbi, it says, he stood up to read. He took the book of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him, opened the book, and found the place where it was written, of course, the prophecy about himself. Notice verse 20 concludes, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the congregation were fixed on him. And notice he began to say to them, that implies, by the way, that Luke didn't record the entire sermon. Jesus had more to say than is here. But notice what's happening. Here's an example of Jesus' ministry in the synagogue. He was there for the weekly worship of God's people, and in his hometown synagogue, he did what was typically done in synagogues across the land, what he typically did, that is, he read the text and explained the text. Jesus was an expository preacher. Now, after the people of Nazareth rejected him, Jesus continued his ministry in the synagogues in Galilee. Look down at verse 31. 
He came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, again, at the synagogue. This was Jesus' regular practice. Verse 44, he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Here's my point. If you examine the ministry of Jesus, you will find a pattern. Jesus often taught during the week. That's true. In fact, some of his most famous sermons were preached during the week from a boat on the Sea of Galilee or at the temple or in some other venue. He often did that. However, the primary focus of Jesus' ministry week in and week out was preaching in the synagogues on the Sabbath when the people of God came together for their corporate worship. Jesus, from the very beginning of his life, fulfilled the Old Testament by participating in the weekly corporate worship of God's people. That was his life. That isn't enough. Let's go on to a second reason that this should be a priority for all of us, and and it's incontrovertible, and that is the New Testament pattern of the church and its weekly corporate worship. The New Testament pattern of weekly corporate worship. You see, under the Mosaic Covenant, the weekly day of worship was the Sabbath, or that's just another word for Saturday. That began to change, however, with the resurrection of our Lord. As you know, He was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, on Sunday. All four Gospels record that. But you remember what happened on the the night of His resurrection, that very night? He went to the upper room where ten of the disciples were gathered. He appeared with them, and what did they do in response to the risen Christ on the first day of the week, His resurrection? They worshiped. They didn't see Him again until eight days later on the next Sunday, again the first day of the week. And what happens? Well, there eleven were gathered. Thomas was with them this time, and they ate together as as disciples of Jesus, and they worshiped. You see, a pattern was already beginning in the very earliest years of the church. Church, of course, born at Pentecost, but even in anticipation of that, you see this pattern beginning. Just like the original disciples on the Sunday of the resurrection, the following Sunday, The disciples of Jesus, as time went on, began to gather on the day of His resurrection for weekly worship. Early in its history, the church began to worship on Sunday. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. On the first day of the week, Sunday, when we… Now, notice Luke wrote the book of Acts, and sometimes he's there with them and sometimes he's not. He's with them here because he says, we, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. You, you remember that description back from Acts chapter 2 where the, the new church as it's formed, they meet together and they break bread. They take the Lord's table. Here we're told this happened on the first day of the week. And not just to break bread, but there was a sermon. Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. In other words, long expository preaching is good. (laughs) But no, seriously, notice what he says. On the first day of the week, the Christians in Troas gathered together to break bread and to hear a message. This event that's recorded here in verse 7 occurred in the late 50s A.D. 
and it is the first official New Testament record of Christians gathering for worship on Sunday. Undoubtedly, it happened before, but this is the first recorded event. Now, Acts 20 is not a special event. It's not an anomaly just because the Apostle Paul was there. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is giving directions about giving in the church in Corinth, collecting money for the the church that was in need. And in the context of that, he gives us some insight into the worship of the early church. Notice chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, notice this, now we're not talking on the first day of the week, but what? The first day of every week, each one of you, so every believer there in Corinth gathers on the first day of every week, and in context, they're to put aside what they've saved for the the offering to the church as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Notice the church gathered for worship, which included giving, on the first day of every week. And this wasn't just isolated to the church in Corinth. Notice verse 1. It also included the churches in Galatia, the churches Paul had planted all in the Galatian region. And this pattern didn't happen just spontaneously. They didn't just decide it. Somebody just had a good idea. Notice it happened in response to the direction of the apostles. Verse 1, now as as concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. Obviously, he's talking specifically about giving, but clearly the implication is that they also were given the direction to meet every week on the first day of the week. So, As a result of the resurrection, the Sabbath, Saturday worship of God's people was specifically and officially set aside. I don't have time to take you to all the passages, just one key one. Just consider Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. There, Paul says, let no one judge you in regard to those Old Testament food and drink laws, and let no one judge you in regard to festivals or annual feasts new moon celebrations, and the Sabbath day. Now, I understand a lot of people say, well, that's only talking about special Sabbath days. This isn't setting aside the Sabbath concept. Well, I challenge you to do this. Go to the Old Testament and look up every time those three expressions occur together, festivals, new moons, and Sabbath. And every time, without exception, those three expressions occur together, it's talking about the weekly Sabbath. So, Paul says, That has now been set aside. Why? Because he says in chapter uh, 2 of Colossians, verse 17, those are mere shadows. The reality has come in Christ. So, the Sabbath was officially set aside, and Sunday, officially, by apostolic direction, became the day the church worshiped. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 The writer of Hebrews is summing up how we ought to respond. And and here, beginning in verse 19, he says, Brethren, this is Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we've, we've been saved by Christ, we can enter into God's presence through Him, verse 21, and since He is our great high priest now, 
And then he gives us three exhortations. Verse 22 is the first one, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Be assured that Christ gives you access to the Father. Secondly, in verse 23, he says, persevere. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Third exhortation comes in verse 24 and 25. Notice what he says. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, that is the day of his return, drawing near. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled Three Hallmarks of a Biblical Church Member. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.